And boom, we're back. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the latest edition of the Wandering Bear Sports Podcast, the number one sports podcast in the world. Before introducing today's guest, can I please ask that if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to whatever platform you're listening on. And if you want to follow along with our journey on social media, please follow us on Instagram at Wandering Bear Sports or on Facebook at Wandering Bear Sports. Today's episode is brought to you each and every week by Caffeine Gum Australia. So I first tried Caffeine Gum when I played at the Melbourne Rebels in 2015 and immediately fell in love with it. It's easily the best caffeine supplement I've ever had for training or games. And even to this day, even though I don't play anymore, I still have it before every gym session and every training session, particularly early mornings. Comes in three good flavors, and with 100 milligrams of caffeine, it really packs a punch as well. So try some today at www.caffeinegumaustralia.com. If you're going to listen to any of my podcasts, then this is the one. This week's amazing guest on the podcast is the Wallabies mental performance coach, Dave Diggle. Dave is a veteran of the sporting arena with over 40 years of competitive and hands-on experience at the top level. After representing Great Britain as an international gymnast, Dave has channeled his passion for sport into the next generation of elite performers. With a background as a high-performance coach, Dave turned his attention to helping athletes, coaches, business people and organisations with their mental performance and the psychological battles that all high performers tackle in the current ultra-competitive environment. I'm going to put links to all his contact details in the show notes. And guys, I, I honestly, this is one of the best podcasts I've ever done. So many takeaways for anyone that wants to make the most of their potential. And honestly, Dave's just a really nice guy and it was an absolute pleasure to talk to him. So... Without further ado, please enjoy this week's episode with Dave Diggle. Dave, how are you, mate? How are you going? Good, mate. Yourself? Not too bad at all. Mate, good to meet you. Thank you so much for doing this. Did you need a glass of water or anything before we kick off? No, I've got my cup of tea. I'm very English when it comes to that. Nice, mate. Nice. <laughs> so I, I went up, like, firstly, thank you for doing this. Um, I probably should tell you a little bit about me before we start talking about you is um, about six months ago, due to some business reasons, I decided to start a podcast. And what, what I've been trying to do is give people an insight into what it takes to make it at the elite levels of sport and, you know, gradually branching off into business. And hmm. one of the, the things I've noticed, and your name's come up over and over again with guys that I've been speaking to, so I'm really excited to speak to you. But I still think that the I still think that the mental side of sport is probably a little bit um, underutilized. The I still think that that's probably the next big jump in performance that a lot of athletes and teams will be able to see. Um, so that's that's where I'm coming from. So, man, I'm super excited. So I'm going to start by asking you a question that I hate people asking me because it's hard for me to explain. But who are you and what do you do for a living? <laughs> so who I am is obviously Dave Diggle. Um, my background is probably the best way to explain what I do. 
so I started off as a as a gymnast, but I got into gymnastics not because I was talented. Um, I got into gymnastics as I had a, an accident as a very an eight eight month old baby, and I cracked all my skull and I lost all my hearing, so I've got no natural sense of balance. So I was back in the seventies, one of those kids who kept falling over. I was hyperactive, um, and my parents just didn't understand what was going on. So when they found out that I I had no natural sense of balance, I was completely deaf in my left ear. They put me into gymnastics to teach me some kind of um, balance, really, some kind of coping mechanisms as a child. And I, I took that and I took that tenacious attitude I had as a child. And I, I recognized I could do more with tenacity than I could with talent. So my gymnastics career kind of blossomed. Um, when I retired from sport, I went into coaching. And I moved to the US and I was working in the US as a high performance coach. And something I'd noticed as an athlete was that I was inconsistent. I was either hero or zero. I was winning competitions, or I was bombing out. And I thought that was a me thing. I thought that was just a flaw in my personality. But when I started coaching, I started seeing it in so many other athletes. And it wasn't only my athletes, so it wasn't just my influence on them. I saw it in a lot of coaches' athletes. That inconsistency, that lack of replicability, and the frustration that, that came. And I knew it wasn't from a, a lack of hard work. So I knew we were fit enough. I knew we were strong enough. We had some of the best SNCs in the world working with his athletes. I knew it wasn't technical because the coaches that I had been exposed to as an athlete the likes of Mitch Fenner, John Atkinson, John Perry, was some of the best in Europe in the 70s and the 80s. So if it wasn't physical and it wasn't technical, it had to be psychological. So I, I went down that path. I wanted to explore something that I agree with you. I think it's a missing link to high performance. Um, the analogy I often use is it's like an F1 racing car. We put so much time and effort and design into the vehicle but not always invest in the driver and so when we think about that from an individual athlete's perspective we've got snc's um and physios and looking at the bodies of these athletes making them half a second faster but no one was focusing on the driver which was the brain and so that's where I saw, the, as I agree with you, the next big leap forward in high performance is managing the central focal point, which is the brain. So that's what I do. Can, can I ask, what do you think that is? Is, is it still a bit of an unknown? It's the intangibility of it. So if you go into a gym and you work with an SNC, you're going to walk out of that gym with an increase in body shape or a, a faster speed, a lap per second time. Anything that you're doing, there's an instant acknowledgement of that. When we talk about our mental capacity, the way that we process our framework of decision making, that takes time. That yeah. takes time to change that. So it's not as tangible as the physical. If you teach someone, if you're at the moment I'm here in, with the Wallabies and there's a lot of focus on ball technique, basic skill technique. And so you can change that in a session. Their, their ability to kick, their ability to pass, their ability to pilfer, those can be changed in the moment. So you can see an instant result from that. Okay. What I um, do can take time. Yeah, I've, I've, 
so, something I regret from my own playing career is that I had my struggles throughout and I, I, I don't know if it's a stigma that I, I just struggled with, with the fact of admitting to weakness, but one of my regret, regrets is that I did not reach out to someone such as yourself to, you know, you, you happily go to the gym, you'll happily pay for nutrition, but for whatever reason, the, the most important part of it, it's still, uh, it's still like it is the missing link. And I, I have a lot of young athletes who listen to this and I, I could not encourage anyone more that if you're having, even if you're not struggling, to still reach out to someone to get the, the driver tuned in. Why do you coach, Dave? Good question. Um it's, it's certainly not for the money, is it? Uh, don't think anybody involved in sport does it just for the money. It's because I like to help and I like to see. I think everybody has the opportunity to to grow and to thrive. And when I when I get to work with people, I don't do it to them. I won't do it for them, but I will do it with them. So I get to go on that journey with them. I get to see them grow. I get to see them experience things and and give them a life experience. I'll share a very quick story with you. I was working with an Ironman many, many years ago when I first started my own business. And he he went to the Kulangada Gold on the Gold Coast. And, you know, he'd always been at the back of the pack. And he was, in, it was a, a short performer, very short. And he had a lot of physical challenges competing against the bigger people. And we went through that process. We spent six months preparing for that race. And he came in fourth which he'd never, ever done before. And, and that, you know, he didn't win, but he'd made that such a great process of getting further up the field. And he was very proud of what he did. And him and I stopped working together. And about four years later, I was driving my car and he's, my phone rang and his name came up. And I said, hey, mate, I haven't spoke to you for a really long time. And he goes, can I ask you, or can I have a conversation with you? I said, sure. He said, uh, I want to say thank you. And I've gone, before I said we stopped working over four years ago I said you know and he goes yeah he said but I didn't realize what you taught me about my sport has changed my life I've got a very successful family I've got a very successful business and he said everything that you taught me about process about thinking the way that I think about my communication model internal and external he said I've applied that to my life and he said it's changed my life that's so, that's amazing that's Love it, love yeah. it. How, how does your background as an athlete, uh, as a gymnast, how, do, how does that affect how you coach athletes today? It's It makes life a lot easier for, for them more than it does for me. So as a high-performance athlete, or any athlete really, there's idiosyncrasies to what you do. It's a unique environment. You know, if you're a teenager, there's not many other kids who get up early in the morning and do laps in a pool or run or do conditioning before they go to school and then spend every evening, and every weekend doing sport. So there's, there's a degree of other people just don't understand. When I can sit down with a, an athlete and say, look, I get it. I've, I've been where you are. I've spent and dedicated my childhood to this one singular thing that I want to achieve. They know that I'm not coming from reading a book or I've got a lab coat on. I've lived their life. Do you think that do you think that helps as a coach being able to speak the language and know that 
when you're talking to an athlete, they know that you've done what you're asking them to do. Hundred percent. I don't think you have to have done that. I don't, and I don't think that there's people out there who say, you know, I maybe want to get into mental performance coaching or even just straight coaching that have never been at high performance level. I think they can do that, but I do think it's another hurdle that, to build that rapport with the athlete that's going to be a little bit difficult for them, a little bit more challenging. Can be done. It just means it's another challenge. But certainly from my perspective, and you know, I've, I've never been a high performance rugby player. But the boys here in the Wallabies, when I talk to them and say, you know, this is how we think. This is what a high performance mindset is. This is the framework to success. I can say, I know that because I've lived it and I've made the mistakes along the way and I can empathize when things don't work. But I also recognize success when they do work. And that it does make a huge difference. Uh, are you in camp at the moment? Yeah, I am. We've, this is our sixth week in, in camp. So you're you're with the team full time throughout the the season, mate. Awesome, yeah. awesome, awesome. Yeah. awesome. I, I guess doing a bit of research uh, for this podcast, there's any different number of ways that we could take this, and you've you've yourself have an amazing podcast which I listened to a lot of over the last week. But I think the thing that people will find really interesting, and, and it's um, particularly poignant considering the way the Wallabies are going at the moment. Is, is the subject around culture and the difference between a good culture and a winning culture. Uh, I mean, culture is such an overused word. What, what does it mean to you in terms of success, performance, a team environment? Yeah, look, again, that's a really good question. And, and I, I think one of the key things that Dave Rennie has done incredibly well in camp is create a, co a collective culture. So an inclusive culture that everybody feels that they are valued in here. So I certainly think that's part of the puzzle, making sure that athletes aren't just said, you need to fit on this conveyor belt, either get on or get off. But that inclusiveness, Dave Rennie and his team have done a phenomenal job of that. And that's pretty much driven by Dave. But when you talk about a winning culture, for me, that's a system. So any kind of success is a process. And the analogy I tend to use with my performers and when I'm lecturing from stage, it's like gardening. You know, you've got to have the right seed. So you've got to have the right selectability. So that's a players, the performers. You've got to select ones that are open to growth, you know, that understand what they bring to, to the table, that understand that they, are not, they don't have to just fit in, but they've got to add to the, the system. So that's part of the, the selection criteria for me. You want people who are willing to add and give and grow, but also know what they what they bring that's unique to them. Yeah. Then you've got that soil around those. And for me, that's the coaching staff and the S&Cs and the nutritionists and the sports scientists. They're the key people that add the nutrients, give them the opportunity to grow, give them the environment to grow. And then you have got the whole environment, which is making sure it's an internal world, not an external world. And one of the key things I think are very difficult for performers these days is a lot of white noise that goes on, particularly with social media, where yeah. you've got armchair critics, you've got people who can literally pick a player apart from the comfort of their armchair, but not really understand the process. So, of... so when you say internal world, so it's more... Um... So, so with the Wallabies, they're looking, 
you know, day that, uh, at the other players, at yourself uh, for approval rather than looking at the media? Am I, am I on the right track? You, look, you are on the right track, and, and it's not necessarily about approval. I, I talk a lot about internal versus external referencing. Yeah. And uh, the, the analogy I use or, or the process I take them through is there's internal and there's external referencing. Internal referencing is we all know those kind of people where they kind of go, you can't tell me what to do. I know what I'm doing. I've got this. And they are completely self-driven. And then you've got externally referenced people who turn around and say, is this good? Am I doing what you asked me to do? You just tell me what you need me to do and I'll do that. They're the two, that's a dichotomy, the two end pillars of that. Yeah. The good thing about being internally referenced is your focus and you're directed. The, the negative side of that is when there's mistakes made, you don't notice until you crash. The good thing about being externally referenced is you don't crash because everyone's telling you what to do. But it's like government, you never grow. So we've got to have a, a balance in between. And what we know is for a, an athlete to thrive, they need to be internally referenced with external ratification. So what that means is they've got to trust themselves. They've got to trust what they're doing is right. They've got to believe and buy into that. But then they've got to have key people on the outside that they reference and they go to and they say, I think this, what do you think? So when you talk about those coaching staff around our players here, we're very much geared to getting the athlete to come up with solutions, to come up with this is what we think is the right thing to do. Now, as coaching staff, what do you think? Is that right? Do we challenge that or do we confirm that? So there's, a, there's an internal belief that comes from that. And I think we're seeing that, particularly at the moment in the Wallabies, where they believe in what they're doing because they've helped nurture and grow it. How long does it take to cultivate that? Or is it something that's never ending? It, I, I don't think you ever get to the end step, and I don't think I'd ever want to get to the end step. I, I want it to be constantly growing and evolving. And every time you know we get to a new level, I, I want to know that there's another level we can grow to. But how long do we get until we get to a point where it's internally driven? How long's a piece of string? And that comes down to that first statement I made about collect, uh, getting the right kind of seeds in, getting the right kind of people who know what they add to the environment. What's their legacy to the team? Yeah. It's not about fitting in necessarily. It's about, okay, this is our environment to grow here. What do you add? I've got, I've got so many, so many questions. When you <laughs> first, and, and it's, it's, only, it's me trying to make sense of it in my head because I, I feel like other people will probably be a, a little similar to me. When you first walked into the Wallaby camp, what, what was the first thing that you did? That's, that's an interesting question because it was, I, I was quite fortunate in the fact that I'd been working with a few of the key players for a few years before I became into the actual camp itself. So the, the, the likes of Hoops and Pocock and Dane Haylett Petty, uh, those kind of guys I've been working with for a couple of years beforehand. So I had a good insight, but I was on the outside looking in. When I got in, the first thing I looked for was the relationship with the players. And it, you know, it's nice to have conversations with the coaches and make sure we're all on the same page. But the reality is I operate from a different place. I have to operate from inside their heads of the athletes. So they need to trust me and I need to trust them. So would that be as simple as going for a coffee with them? 
I, I, I do sit and talk to him. Um, we do sit and we plan and we look at the, the, the first exercise I take them through is what we I call a funnel process. And I start looking at how do you prepare? What's working for you at the moment? What's not working for you? What do we need to do different? And start to give them some kind of that early tangible look. At, I can actually do this a little bit smarter. Yeah. So they yeah. can see the, the, the value that thinking differently or communicating differently can give them. Once we've started to put the, the pieces in place, how do, you, how do you turn a good culture into a winning culture? Because they're quite different, in my opinion. For sure. For sure. So my philosophy on growth is we collect data, we build a plan, we apply it. We collect better data, better plan, better application. So for me, it's about setting um, little benchmarks, building a plan to that benchmark and then reassessing. So if I said to you, how do you eat an elephant? One at a time. Exactly right. So having that mindset here is super important. Within sport, we're very end step driven. Got to win this. You got to win that. You know, we've got to be Olympic champion. We've got to be Bleslow champions, world champions. All of those key things are important. But from where I work from, it's not necessarily what we're doing. It's how we get there. And do you, do you assess that? Do you, have, do you formally assess it? Or you go, you know, we've just been in the French after 75 minutes, losing our best player in the first five minutes. I mean, that's, that's a pretty good, it would feel to me that you've just stepped up and on. So now would be the time to plan, collect data, and then go for the next step, which would be the, the All Blacks. Yeah, correct. So you know, building self-belief is difficult, particularly when you walk into a team that unfortunately hasn't had a great depth of success. Now, I'm, I'm sure there's going to be even bigger challenges as we move forward, but we've now just raised our uh, our starting point to a new level. So that's now our new foundations. That self-belief, that working together, one of the biggest things that I started to initiate last year with the team was communication. How do we communicate with each other? This is what I need from you. What do you need from me? So that symbiotic relationship rather than a parasitic relationship, which was, you know, which was uh, systemic throughout most sports. It's, it's, it's for, for me, like I've just gotten into coaching and the growth of a team takes time, as, you, yes. as you're saying. But, you know, ultimately at the professional level, on any level really, you judged on results and the performance at that, that next game, that next week, that day. It's a very unusual way for a young person or any person to live their life, particularly in your mid-20s, early 30s. How, how do you, as a coach, keep the players on task with, you know, we're here for the long term, we're improving. Our results may not be where we want them yet, but we are going in the right direction. Yeah. Did, did, did that make sense how I said that? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, my philosophy around this is a, is a little bit um, unorthodox. I very rarely initially talk to players about winning. I talk to them about their, the best version of themselves. So if I'm sitting with a player, whether they're an individual athlete or a team athlete, and say, what does the best version of you look like? And we'll have a 
we'll have dialogue around that and we'll build a, a perception of what that best version of them looks like. Let me say, right, where are we right now in comparison to that? And we'll build a plan. It's a thing I call a decision matrix and it's broken down into bite-sized chunks. Yeah. And we work we work backwards. So we start with the optimal version of ourselves and we work backwards. What has happened before that? All the way back to where we are right now. Yeah. And so then when we hit our first benchmark, it's all internally driven. It's not driven by what the pundits say on a Saturday, whether we won or whether we lost. You know, and you're hundred percent correct. There's no other career in the world where you are judged every single week. Could you imagine an office? If every single every day, week, really. Yeah, exactly right. There's it's, no other environment where it's like that. And these are very young athletes, you know. Um, so we've got to teach them that internal resilience by setting their own benchmarks and recognizing success. I often, I often say to the athletes, and I think back, particularly the younger ones, I'll say, think back to your last school exam that you sat. And when you got your paper back, what was the first thing that you looked for? And they'll say to me, my result. And I say, yeah, that's right. So you're gauging yourself against everybody else. Where do I sit? What's the hierarchy here? What's yeah. the next thing you looked for? And they'll also say, oh, the things I got wrong. Okay, well, you're human. That's what we've trained humans to do, to look for the things that are not working rather than the things that are working. So my philosophy and the, the language I use with them is, doesn't matter whether it's a training session, a game each week, or preparation or a skill acquisition the first thing you need to say to yourself is what worked when you recognize what worked you can replicate it and when you can replicate it you can grow it the next thing you need to look for is what didn't work because we want to grow but that should be very quickly followed but what do i need to do different so if you think about my language there is okay this didn't work but what do i need to do to correct it so you take ownership of growth Yes, that, that, that makes total sense. I mean, most human beings would look at the, the results and the negatives first, but for, for personal growth and the ability to reach your optimal self, looking at what went right is, is a far better path. It's replicable and it gives you that opportunity to grow it. So the human brain, if you, if you give focus to something, it makes the assumption it's valuable to you. Yeah. So if you're focusing on the mistakes, your brain will make the assumption that that mistake is important to you. So you're more likely to replicate it. Okay. Okay. I, I wish I'd met you when I was 20, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> um, you did a brilliant podcast on the phases of group development. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I think that'd be really, really interesting for my listeners. I mean, anyone. So really. what, part, what part of that specifically? Because that was quite a big uh, the forming, storming, norming, and performing part, and just yep. just very briefly, because I, I think a lot of coaches don't understand it, and I think it's absolutely critical for any young coach to have just even a basic understanding of this. Yeah. So again, I'll, I'll use school as a great example of this. So when we go to a new classroom, the first thing we do, we get put into that group, so we get formed. We often don't have a selection around that we're not part of that discussion to be in that group and it's the same with teams we're put into a group what initially happens is the human then starts to kind of go oh 
go a little bit within ourselves. We we play nicely. We don't really interact. We're just assessing who's who in the zoo. And yeah. it's quite quiet. And then if you think about a school in the first couple of weeks, everybody is performing very well because no one's stepping on toes. Everyone's very centrally focused on not upsetting anybody. Then very quickly, we go into a storming phase. And that storming phase is we do work out who's who in the zoo, who are the more dominant people, who are those that will just assimilate to the group dynamic, who are the nerds who will go and sit in the corner and get their homework done. And that storming phase is a phase where we drop off in performance. So any team that's been formed very quickly after that formation will drop in performance. Okay. Now, what tends to happen is a coach will step in and try and circumvent that and get us to normalization, which is the next phase. So forming, storming and norming. What they'll do is they'll say, no, this is how you perform. This is what you've got to do. But that storming is still going on underneath. So it seems like the storming is actually quite a critical part. To it's the incredibly critical. Yes. Okay. So we have to allow that to go through that place. We can... We can encourage it and we can make it happen a lot quicker by giving it structure, which is one of my roles. Yeah. So when we, when we form leadership groups, getting people to understand their role recognition very quickly gets us to normalization much sooner. And we can only perform once we get to a normalization, a stable platform. We can't perform from a storming stage. Yeah. So that circumventing by coaches saying, like, this is how we perform, doesn't really allow the athletes to take ownership. They slip back into that storming every opportunity. If they don't win a game, they'll go back to storming and blaming each other and go, well, you didn't do this and you didn't do that. But if they know their roles, if they know that, hey, when I'm, when I'm leading this team, I've got to be very vocal. That's my job, or I've got to be specific in my language and they lose they can look at it more pragmatically and go oh we were quiet we didn't communicate well enough all right we can fix that so it becomes about growth again how does a coach navigate a team through that storming phase because again i guess it comes back to what we were talking about before particularly at the level you're working at results are what you're judged on but it may not be telling the full picture so so as a coach what would you recommend they do during that phase? So there's two things to be really clear on when you're taking an athlete through that or a team through that storming phase is one, what is our outcome? What does success look like to us? If we're going to be a team that does X, Y, and Z, the best in the world, what are the gaugeables to that? So we're all heading in the same direction. And then two, it's about empowerment. So empowering the athletes to discuss and finalize and refine how they fit. So when we talked earlier about being very selective on those seeds that you plant, that's those athletes knowing that, you know, if they're good communicators, giving them that platform to be a good communicator. If they're good solution orientated players, letting them be drive that solution. And so giving them the freedom and as coaching stuff, that's incredibly difficult to step back and let it happen. Yeah. But knowing that it has to happen to get to that normalization is super important. Uh, I think that just even that little bit will be critical for so many people to hear, mate, because 
Like, how many times have you seen a coach get fired for poor results, and then a year or two later, they're winning that that team's winning the title? And it's uh, I guess it's really the the paradox of professional sport. Can we talk about leadership a little bit, and maybe some of the work that you do with the Wallaby leaders? How important? How important for the success of a team is cultivating strong leadership? It's super important because they're the spearhead to what the team is doing. And again, like again, Dave Rennie in this environment has been very good at selecting a good leadership team. And it's not only the guys that have been around for a long time; it's other guys that are new to the team. By recognizing what is it they bring, you know, what's their skill set that's unique to them. And for us, in particularly in my role, it's not necessarily orchestrating the leadership. It's having a dialogue with them and saying, okay, if this is your skill set, what does that look like? How do you how do you grow that? So there's players in our team that have been around the Wallabies for a long time, but have never spoken. There's guys that wouldn't even know how to stand up in front of the team and go, you know what? I think this is important to us. I think this is a direction as a team that we could get some good return on investment with and encouraging them and building that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, allowing to step up and have that voice, to have those opinions, to have that drive. They may not be selected to go forward with that choice, but they've now just feel that they've added to the team rather than, okay, I've got to try and fit in here and just be part of it, go along for the journey. So, so in, in effect, um, so firstly, does, does Dave pick the leaders or do the players themselves pick the leaders? Because I've, I've been a part of both those scenarios as a player. Um, what's, what's your view on how that should work? So I, I won't speak about how Renz does it, but I will speak about what I think is the optimal. And I think it's a, it's a mixture of both. Okay. And so that um, that collective discussion, particularly with the team captain, you kind of say that these are the kind of record things that we recognize from the outside looking in of what key players bring to the table. From the inside, what do you see? And letting them look back at us and say, well, you know what, this player here, he might not talk in front of your coaches, but he's really significant in problem solving. You know, or this guy here is, you know, he's not he's not great at standing up in front of the team at the moment, but his strategy understanding is phenomenal and he'd be great to put in as part of the team. Yeah. So it's a collaboration of both sides of the, the table, I think. And we've been very cognizant here and in all the teams that I've worked in, if not, it's coaches versus players. But you know, we're all in this together. Our culture very much is things that coaches bring to the table players don't need to and things that players bring to the table is coaches can't bring and going back to that storming phase everybody needs to understand their role what they add to the team what's their legacy to the growth and the evolution of the playing team so as a coach as a coach with the leadership group you're trying to help them see their role within the team and to try and help them not just be a part of the team, but add to the team. Yeah, correct. And and that, that seems quite critical um, for any organisation, let alone sporting team, uh, for, for people to understand. And I'm assuming that you and Dave are the guys that are driving um, that with the players. Is, is, that, is that right? Correct, yeah, very much so. And just on your speak to your point before, um, 
a good 20% of my clientele is CEOs who, who want that competitive mindset in their business and understand that that high performance um, replicability is what makes successful businesses. So back in the day, back in the 70s and 80s, when life was a bit more black and white, sport and business couldn't have been further apart. Today, the mindset of an elite athlete isn't different to an elite business owner. That's right. There's lots of transferable skills with coaches who go into the business world or vice versa because it's fundamentally the same. Would you would you agree with that? Because you're growing people who, who, you know, again, back in the 70s and 80s, we had to be the ringmaster. We had to have all the skills. And then you had this very clear line between the people underneath you who just did the workforce. And then there was the boss who did everything else. Now it's all about job sharing. And, and making sure everybody brings their uniqueness to the table. Something I've found very interesting in my, like I'm six months into my coaching career and it, it really shines a light on, on human beings and the different personalities and, you know, uh, that all sorts of people go into a sporting team. It's really, really interesting because um, mm-hmm. when you're a player, you kind of only focus on yourself. Why are some people resistant to change in your opinion? One of the fundamental fears humans have is a fear of the unknown. So unless we know, one, where we're going, and two, what the outcome or how we get there, then we're not going to want to change. And the vast majority of people are, because of human nature, because we're essentially pack animals, fear failure. Because fear of failure means we're at the bottom of the pack and we're the most vulnerable person in society. So we tend to see people, and I call it the beige band, the normality in the middle, the part where it's the most safest. Now, when you're talking to elite people or high performers, whether you're talking athletes, coaches or business people, we choose to put ourselves at the top. And often to get to that top of the pack, We've failed so many times. So the fear of failure isn't necessarily as got a big sting to it as people who are trying to live in the beige band, who are fearful of any kind of movement. But people at the top have more of a fear of failure. Sorry, so more of a fear of success and fear of failure. And that's about replicability. So you, you see certain people kind of go, I've got so close to the top, but if I step above the parapet and I'm successful, how do I do that again? And so that's that the fear, fear of having to rip. That's the fear of success. Can you, something I think so many people would be interested in is can you cultivate the, the mindset to step above the parapet? Or is it something that you're born with? Because people do do it. It's very rare, but people do do it. Is it something you can cultivate? Look, I, I think you're right. I think some people are born or at least are given the environment at a young age to make that their normal choice is to step above and keep getting hit and step back up again and get hit and step back up again. However, my my philosophy and very much what I've I've instilled in the people that I work with, that success is a process. And if you're successful, there's a reason for that. There's a process that you've gone through to get to that point and if you've done it once you can do it again it's just understanding the how 
So that fear of success dissipates very, very quickly when you know how you were successful. It's just coming back the next week and going, right, what worked, it didn't work. What do I do different to grow this? So um, I, I did a podcast with Jake Gordon, um, fantastic human being, really, really like him. Really love him. Uh, yeah, yeah. Really good guy. But he, he was talking about um, something that I, I think you helped him with was is going through a process in terms of his passing. So he used to do, uh, my memory's a little shorty, but I think it was something like he used to do a lot and then you cut it down to um, you know, quality reps and in his head, once he's ticked that box, he knows that he's going to be good that day. So in terms of helping athletes know how they got successful, is it coming back to uh, having a process and then as a coach, helping them understand what that process is? Yeah, look, there's two there's two parts to that um, to that process. Number one is is create an internal blueprint in your brain. So it doesn't matter if you're passing a ball, kicking a ball, hitting a tennis ball, or as a gymnast doing a somersault, or cleaning the teeth or riding a bike. What our brain does, it creates a blueprint in our brain of how we do that. When we understand the how, it's not about doing multiple versions of that. It's about knowing. What do I need to do to know I can do this? So I, I teach, the second part of this is I teach a funnel process is what I alluded to earlier. Yeah. And and that's what I call that the seven to two. And that seven to do is a week out from a game. I say, right, how do you want to perform? And I get them to identify that. I get them to get really clear and specific about their performance in that coming week. Now, initially they'll say to me, I want to win. And I'll pull them back from that and go, how do you want to perform? When it becomes a consequence of you performing. And they'll get really clear and really defined about that. And I'll say, right, what do we need to do this week to tick the boxes so that you can perform? Because if I said to you as a player, the day before a game, how do you know you're ready? What would your response be? Me, I, I wouldn't have been able to tell you. No, like, you'd be waiting to feel a certain way, wouldn't you? Wait to be feel comfortable. Yeah, I, I feel good for whatever reason. That there would usually no logic to how I felt. Correct, yeah. and you know, congratulations, you're human. So that <laughs> process of I need to feel a certain way is so inconsistent; it creates doubts in our brain. So going back to Jake, whether it be preparing for a game or focusing on a skill, it's how do I know I'm ready? How do I know I can pass that ball effectively? And it comes down to whether you're doing line outs or you're passing a ball or you're kicking for goal, it's what's my process, what's my blueprint? So there's a couple of other players I've worked with who are the kickers. And historically they'll come to me and go, you know, I'm doing 30 to 50 kicks a day and I'm getting knee issues, I'm getting hip issues. And I'll say to them, why are you doing so many? And wait for it to feel right. Okay, let's go back to the blueprint. How do you kick? Then how do you know you've kicked that correctly? And they'll go, okay, I'll follow my process. I hit the ball in a certain point. And once that ball's left your foot, you have no control over it. So your job is finished. So the same with passing. People will say, I, you know, a good pass is when my partner catches a ball that's not a good pass is when you followed your process it's left your hands and you yeah. no longer have any control over it now they may 
catch the ball or they may be off the pace and miss the ball but that's got nothing to do with your process um that's so so valuable for young athletes to hear can, can i just ask dave um if you've gone just say i've gone through that with you and then on the weekend i, I maybe didn't perform to the level that i wanted or, or was required yep. of me. is it is it a matter of going back and just adjusting the process Yes. So adjusting your blueprint and, and just, you know, maybe it's do 10 scrums as opposed to 20 scrums and just, you know, mixing it up. And, and once I've nailed my performance, that's what you go back to each week. Correct. Yes. So if, if we've got that blueprint, let's say we've got that blueprint and it's working for you. Let's say you're doing line outs and your line outs are really clear all week. They're hitting and nail every single time your process and then come to game day, your emotions go up. And as long as you follow your, your blueprint inside your brain, you're going to get the same replicable outcome. If you're emotion driven, if you're gauging off emotions, come to game day, your emotions have gone up. So what have you trained for? Yeah. So if you're, if you follow your process, but it doesn't work on game day, the first thing I'll say to you, okay, what worked? Even if you had the worst game of your life, I say, what worked? And they struggle to come up with things, but they'd always come up with something. Okay, yeah. what didn't work? Oh, you know, I, I didn't I didn't follow my process. What part specifically didn't you action? I didn't have my hands in the right place on the ball or I didn't breathe as I as I threw. Okay, cool. We're doing this very pragmatic, we fix that. So I, I'm sorry, man. I feel like I'm far too stupid to be the one talking to you. <laughs> but but I, I think others might be the same. So um in terms of performing at the elite level in front of huge crowds, all that stuff is fundamentally just noise. And the, the absolute key to performing at that level is to work out your process and then follow your process day in, day out. Is it correct? Uh, that's okay. that's exactly the simple version. The yeah. reality is I, I talk about from chalk to chalk. And that means the second you cross a chalk, you're going to work. What happens on the outside of that chalk, as in the crowd, the, the the media, the social media, that doesn't come into the game. And it's creating a mindset. Once you've crossed that chalk and you've stepped into the performer version of you, so there's a non-athlete version of you, there's a student-athlete version of you, which is when you go to training and you're trialing things, you're pushing boundaries, you're learning your systems, you're learning your blueprints. And there's a performer version of you switching into that performer should be the most simple thing you do it's just about following the process yeah so ideally uh, ideally so uh, shoot shield brisbane club rugby players just in an ideal world i know it doesn't work like that but they should be trying to be at the starting phase of that trying to learn their process so that ultimately when they get to you they should be nailing it and just adjusting it i'm sure it doesn't work like that but that an ideal world yeah in an ideal world i think one of the key things i've learned particularly about australian rugby is our grassroots versions should be having more than the wallabies should be having someone who do what i do at the grassroots well, i agree totally mate to, totally. to help those young athletes form good habits from the start rather than get to a certain level whether that be you know the franchises of super rugby or the wallabies and trying to correct old behaviors um mate i've got so many questions but i'm really uh, conscious of your time so i won't ask too many more but 
Can, can I just ask, is, is there a particular trait that you see that's common in all high performers from your observations? So a, a focus on quality. And when you get to a certain level, you, what you do see in most high performers is they move away from the young mindset of I've got to do more. I've got to do, I've got to do those 50 kicks. I've got to do that 30 scrums. I've got to do, you know, whatever it is, or 400 passes each direction. And that becomes more about quality and following that blueprint and kind of like, no, I've nailed that one. This is how I do it rather than what I'm doing. Having a growth mindset, I think when you look at the the most successful athletes on the planet, there was a study that was done back in the early 90s, and it looked at the top 1% of performers around the world. And what they distilled it all down to, it wasn't about talent, less than 10% of that top 1% were the most talented. So 80% of that came down to something else. And what that tended to be was having a plan and tenaciously following it they were more likely to be successful. And you could apply that in any aspect of life, not just sport. 100%. Do you have a book, do you have any book that you recommend or any of your clients read, any young athletes read? Yeah, I I normally give out a book list to all my clients and it's about 30 books on there. But the top three, I think, um, Black Box Thinking by Matthew Syed is a really good book for slightly older athlete um angela duckworth's uh grit is a really good because again that talks about process rather than emotion um and what would be the other one start with the why so uh simon cynics start with the why so that whole why am i doing this what's my outcome what am i getting from this allows athletes to buy into the change in the process a lot easier if you had to recommend anything to recommend one thing to any young athlete, what would that be starting their journey? Visualization. For me, that is the biggest return on investment and practice practicing I, what visualization? Practicing learning yeah. what visualization is. I mean, I'm very okay. fortunate. I work in a lot of different sports from motor racing all the way through to ice skating and rugby and soccer. Um and every athlete I talk to and every coach I talk to about visualization, the first thing I say, teach me what you know about visualization. And I'm yet to find a coach or an athlete who has a really good understanding about visualization. But the reality is if I asked you to pass 10 balls to the left, how many of those 10 would be identical? Probably not many or any, yeah. None. So you've yeah. got 10 options in your brain. So when you get put under pressure and your brain goes, have I been here before? It panics and goes, yeah, I've been here 10 times. Which one do I pick? If I asked you to create an image inside your brain of passing a ball 10 times, how many of those could be identical? Yeah. So that's incredibly, incredibly valuable. So it's the practice. The practice puts it into your brain. And then in a pressure situation, that's what you will go back to. 100%. So just for your... Just for your younger viewers, if you've seen the movie Inside Out. I haven't, no. Okay, it's a kid's movie. It's it's a, a Pixar movie, and it's about little people in your brain. And one of the things at night they do is they put the memories from the day into long-term storage, or as we talk about, crystallized memory. So if you're going to visualize, the best time of day to visualize is just before you go to bed. The more specific, the more accurate you are with your visualization and no more than five or 10 of them 
then you get in bed, your brain then puts that into crystallized memory. You're more likely to replicate that the next day. Okay. Okay. Wow. That's, mate, that's fantastic. Mate, last question. Last question for you. What advice would you give 18-year-old Dave Dickel? I ask all my guests <laughs> this. You can go any direction you like. doesn't have to be just about sport or anything. Yeah. So when I put my athletes out to compete, the last thing I say to them is trust, believe, enjoy. Trust in your preparation, believe in yourself and enjoy what you do. And if I had an opportunity to jump in a time machine and go back to the 18 year old version of me, that's exactly what I would say. I was way too influenced by the white noise that went on around me, what other people thought. And I yeah. didn't trust in myself. I didn't believe in myself. And I certainly wasn't enjoying it as much as I should have done. That's a fantastic way to end. Thank you so much for your time, Dave. I really appreciate it, mate. Um, where can people find you? online what do you want people to find you <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i'd love people to find me online it's great um the easiest way to find me is if you go to smartmindhub.com that's yeah. my main website or um smart mind institute on facebook is another option or they can email me at uh, office at davediggle.com it's the easiest way and i'm happy and to I answer questions for anybody I highly recommend uh, everyone listen to your podcast. It's fantastic, and um, I hope you do more of them, mate. Um, congratulations on the win on the weekend. Um, I you. hope you guys enjoyed it enormously, as we all did. And um, thank you so much for your time, mate. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Mate, all, all the best, and um, best of luck for the rest of the year, mate. Hope you enjoy a bit of downtime. <laughs> I'm looking forward to December for that. <laughs> mate, <good. laughs> enjoy, enjoy, Dave. Thanks so much for your time, mate. My pleasure. Take care. Gotcha, and that's today's episode, guys. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this episode or any of our episodes, please make sure to subscribe um, on your preferred podcasting platform. Currently, we're on YouTube, uh, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And please make sure you follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Wandering Bear Sports. Until next week, wishing you and yours all the best, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>